Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Isolde Heydenrich, a leading dermatologist based in Cape Town, South Africa. Dr. Heydenrich is a globally acclaimed medical aesthetics educator and is a key opinion leader for Allegan Aesthetics, SkinCeuticals, L'Oreal and La Roche-Posay. She is passionate about the empowerment of both medical professionals and patients alike and has particular interests in procedural safety, the consultation process, trust and empathy. Isolde's holistic approach to injectables has established her reputation as a trusted teacher, not just for her education in injectable technique, but also regarding the long-term implications of rounded and ethical practice. Her research has provided invaluable advancement of appropriate practice internationally. Hi, guys. Hello, Isolde. How are you? I'm well. It is so nice to see you. I know, right? This is as good as it's going to get, I'm afraid. Oh, well, nothing to complain about. How's your son? He's fine, thank you. Yeah, he's home and, and we're all better as a family. And how's things with, with you in South Africa? What's happening? We will. Um, much grace and many blessings. Surprisingly well, actually. Yeah, well, it's been um, a weird reality. I think every country and every city has got its own little mm. reality bubble. And mm. it seems mm. like we in Sydney have been extremely lucky compared to some people. Melbourne. In South Africa, mm. yeah, look, Melbourne's taken obviously a mm. turn for mm. much worse. Um, I'll introduce you to David. David is older. Is older, David. Nice to meet you, Isolde. Thank you for being so flexible with your start time. Much appreciated. <laughs> Sorry for the false start. Such a pleasure. So, how do you know Jake? Oh, how could we not know Jake? <laughs> we, met, we, we met excitingly um, in Singapore. We did. Oh. But it, it wasn't Under dubious, dubious circumstances when he was dressed as a rugby player. <laughs> yeah. no. uh, I've I got to hear more about this story. <laughs> um, maybe not. <laughs> ah, it's actually quite boring. So, uh, well, it's not boring. It's actually really exciting. So, we went to Singapore with Allegan for the Asia Pacific um, sort of education event for the trainers. And as right. older is one of the super international trainers, she was training the uh-huh. trainers. Um, and she was doing the MD codes sort of station. So right. if, if anyone knows about the MD codes, it's sort of Allegan's sort of syllabus for injectables and consulting and, um, things like that. Anyway. Yeah. And then the fancy dress was, uh, we, well, Australia was really, um, you know, we were, you know, everyone came in their national dress and like Fijian outfits and, you know, Indian outfits. And we turn up in rugby gear cause we don't have a national dress. And somebody gave me a little kangaroo keyring, which is still hanging on my lanyard in my office. So I actually look at every single day I see that little one after having been on a station together in Singapore. So Skippy is your is your is your official mascot now. Absolutely. You guys know each other, but I was gonna ask Isolde to tell like tell me and like I guess all our listeners a little bit about herself and who she is which obviously you're from South Africa but you know Jake's been raving about you and been really excited about this podcast because we're going to get to I guess um, delve into the other side of injectables which is I guess the psychological side as well as the physical side or the medical side 
um, which I'm really excited about because that's something that we've spoken about on many other occasions and how important that whole process is. So I'm the girl from Africa, the southern tip of Africa. <laughs> I live in Cape Town near the foot of Table Mountain and right. um, work in a cosmetic dermatology center with a, a classmate and colleague, dermatologist um, whom I've known since my first year. We've been in our center for the past 11 years. It's just the happiest workplace I can imagine. So I um, wow. adore my work. But before I did medicine, um, I did my diploma in anesthetics. I did an honors degree in nuclear medicine. And before I did medicine, I actually did music. My um, three last wow. in piano and um, um, chamber music. And I used to play the church organ for seven years. So, um, right. Yeah. Great. I feel like married I've just wasted my entire life yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm married to a wonderful husband who's a dentist who does not do aesthetics. And I've got two... Um, amazing sons who are the joy of my life and I love um, cooking and sewing and sculpting and reading and so as I told you Jake I'm seldom I'm seldom bored oh it's a new thing it's my first time ever I'm a newbie so I'm oh, really, you're doing so help well. me through this <laughs> so Isolde why did you choose dermatology when you when you were in medical school how did you sort of end up doing skin that is a very long story Jake I actually have a mother who's a had a mother. She passed away literally a year ago, actually, when I was at the New Zealand Congress. Oh, sorry and she was a derm. Uh, um, and um, she wanted me to do dermatology. And because kids don't listen to their mothers, I didn't want to do dermatology. So she actually, um, after I finished medicine, she basically entered me for dermatology. And I um, refused. I wanted to do things of my own volition. So I was in Namibia for three years, um, a GP. Well, at the state hospital, I did my anesthetics diploma there. And then I came back to Cape Town and did echocardiography, cardiology for three years. Right. And then I wanted to study again. So that's how I got into nuclear medicine and did the honors. Um, and then eventually I realized that what I want to do is dermatology. <laughs> so I went to do dermatology. <laughs> my, father, yeah, my father was a pediatric surgeon and my mother a dermatologist. But um, so eventually I did it by own volition and I'm happy it happened that way around. I'm going to ask a question that um, I'm thinking, and I'm sure everyone else who um, is not overly familiar with nuclear medicine, what, what is that? <laughs> is that like do you, is that like you blow things up, then you maybe make you and you fix people? Like how how does it work? No, it's actually it's it's fascinating. It's a diagnostic field where you inject a certain nuclide that goes to a certain organ. You you couple the the um, radioactive substance to something that goes to, for instance, bone. Maybe Jake, your son would have had a bone scan now to see whether there was infection or a technetium white blood cell count. So you connect the radioactivity with something that goes to whatever you want to study, and then the patient goes under a um, camera and you um, see where it radiates from. And it's got one therapeutic option basically for um, prostate cancer, where it goes to the prostate mets and it can irradiate then. And these days, um, before I left, there were the PET scans, which is very in vogue now. It's always fascinated me. So it's a very interesting field. But I'm happy I'm working wow. with people now. I'm, I miss the interpersonal contact. I wouldn't be able to not work with people. Yeah, I was going to say that's so not you, having got to know you. Mm. You're, you're a real people mm. person. You need to cuddle mm. people and hug people and, you know, yeah. hand on the shoulder, et cetera. Mm. So being stuck in a little mm. dungeon at the bottom of the hospital, sticking nuclear material to people doesn't sound like uh, something that you would do for very long. 
<laughs> yeah. Now that that message I did get eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So why don't you tell us about um, the aesthetic sort of market in South Africa? It's kind of intriguing for for several reasons. But what what's your typical client where you are in Cape Town? We've actually got an amazing practice. Our dermatology patients, I mean, that's been coming to me for 20 years. I do their skin checks. I find their melanomas, hopefully. So um, it's a very loyal patient base we have. So it's um, we've got a very special patient base, I think. My colleague does the energy-based devices mm-hmm. and has been doing it for years. I do the injectable Samoa mapping and the PDT. So I think maybe our patient profile is different to the um, to the general aesthetic clinic profile. We've got a, dem- a dermatology process doing um, a, um, center doing cosmetics, and that's pretty rare in our country. Yeah. The dermatologists doing aesthetics in our country are um, really few and far between. Fair enough. And what's your makeup of racial profile of patients as well? That would be an interesting dynamic that we just don't see. Well, we see it from the Asian perspective here in Australia, but it doesn't really mm. get more multicultural than that. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, largely Caucasian. And then a lot in Cape Town, we've got um, as an indigenous Cape population, which we see a lot. And we're increasingly seeing, you know, the Kosa and Zulus who are coming more from the north. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm a consultant at the university too, and there one has a different profile. So I see a pretty diverse culture. Interesting. Yeah. Very, and very African beauty is one of my um, one of the things that fascinates me. Too little has been written about it. Yeah. I've actually just finished a chapter for a book on African beauty because African beauty is not um, Afro-American beauty. Yeah. But you mustn't get me started on that topic now because it's fascinating. Well, that's the second podcast that we're going to drag you back for, for <laughs> African views. <Okay. laughs> yeah, it must be fascinating attaching, uh, looking at those faces entirely differently, the bone structure and just, you know, certain features. It just must be a completely different approach entirely. It is. And also just the culturally different approach. If you think how pa- Asian patients present, they do face reading, they present very early on, they want things changed to change. Um, African beauty is different. It's a more holistic picture generally. So the whole mm. beauty concept is different amongst Asians, although it is changing to a degree now with the advent of social media, inevitably. Mm. And Isolde, we were just talking off air um, before we started. Can you just fill people on, on, and I guess it will explain why we're doing this sort of podcast, your, your involvement in, I guess, aesthetic education, first of all, and then you know your particular niche topics of um, trust and empathy and consulting skills. Well, my love for education is a long story, actually, Jake. You don't know this one. But um, when I just um, finished dermatology, um, I was truly drawn to aesthetic medicine in a way I can't try and explain to you. And it was totally, totally frowned upon. I was ridiculed by the academics. Um, I was sort of taken out. I got the academic quizzical brown for doing something that's totally unacademic. Yep. In our country, we are currently 140 dermatologists for 57 million, nearly 60 million. Wow. So to, to, to sort of waste your life holding a syringe, it, it, it was frowned upon. I was, um, interestingly, the first time ever I read an aesthetic um, journal at our journal clubs was probably about five years ago. I was too ashamed for being ready. And, and sort of after I started speaking out, um, it's um, I was amazed by the interest. So it was very lonely for me. I had no local mentors. Mm. Um, Kun was always there for me overseas, but I was pretty out on a limb 
never anybody to ask. And I don't think it should be that way. Yeah. So for the past five, seven years, I've been a consultant at the university. I feel passionately that I want to help people to do it in an easier way. I've got an enormous thing about method and structure, which is my explains my interest in safety. I had nobody to ask or to hold on to, so I, I needed um, method and structure. Yeah. So I suppose my, my, my love for sharing knowledge comes from there. And um, my love for relating to people, I don't know. I just, um, I just find humanity interesting and I enjoy them. Our trait empathy, and our, our, I think we're just made differently, everybody. So maybe I've just been designed in, in that way. And maybe I'm a factory fault, but that's how I am. Yeah, and you were telling me about two or three years ago, you were listening to a lecture about trust and, and you initially thought, well, this isn't too relevant to me. But then as you listened, you were suddenly realized, well, this is actually my passion. It's fascinating. I was asked to do a talk at a, um, at a big event for a very trusted molecule that had become of a certain age. And I was asked to talk on... Um, it was, it was <laughs> Botox, beautifully Botox and the trusted <laughs> molecule. Um, and when I got the topic, I thought, as my kids would say, meh, really. And I was um, in um, Europe after an event. We were in a tiny little um, French Alpine town called um, Pay, be between Monaco and Menton, right up in the mountain, so small, there wasn't even a curio shop, and it was pouring with rain. Um, and I... Um, there was nothing to do. We couldn't even go walking. I was actually bored, which is unaccustomed strain to me. And I thought I'd just start sort of um, looking up trust because I've got this talk to make. And I stumbled upon a TED talk by somebody called Paul Zak, who is an, um, he calls himself a um, neuroeconomist. He's an American professor who's done an inordinate amount of work on trust. And I was riveted because one of the groups that have done the most on trust are actually economists. It's been proven that countries with high trust are economically um, better off than low trust countries. I mean, I trust you, you trust me, so we do business. And this Prof. Paul Zach decided if he could find a way or a molecule or something, he could help struggling countries fare better in the world. It's fascinating. So he spent 10 years trying to find out whether there is actually a biochemical marker. And that's how he came upon oxytocin as what is now known um, the trust molecule. I was riveted. And then I just realized that um, I never knew this. Our brain at baseline functions in distrust mode. Your inferior frontal gyrus has a distrust mode where we live. And um, if you decide to trust, you go into the precuneus. But trusting is a decision. And I was wondering how on earth, what makes you decide? So I would assume that that is probably a leftover uh, instinct from when we had to sort of go out there and fend for ourselves in the wild. I mean, if you're naturally trustful and probably make you very susceptible to predators, is that where you think maybe something like that is where it come from? And that's just a, in a protection mechanism. Absolutely. The saber-toothed tiger would have got you. And what's fascinating <laughs> about this too, when you, when you get to the empathy part, um, the same principle um, we've got in our brainstem, we've got um, a center for tone of voice which is part of your whole empathy circle, which directly overlays your fight or flight center. So in the day of the caveman, if you heard the next door neighbor's voice going slightly up, you knew you had to run. Otherwise, you might have been killed. So it, it literally is survival instinct, yes. I think I remember from your talk is older where you were saying, I can't remember exactly what happened, but they played the same sort of sentences in different tones of voice. 
And then they measured the outcomes on the people listening and literally their physiology changed. Literally. They like, so you would record me and then you play your recording back to me, the speaker, but modulated it electronically to sound angry or rushed or stressed. And the, the previous, your whole physiology changed. It's fascinating. And often we don't know what we sound like. Mm-hmm. You make it stressed or hurried, but people pick it up. I guess that's why text messages are such a dangerous thing because there's no tone. There's, you can't hear how things are being said and it's, things can escalate mm. quite quickly because you just mm. don't have the benefit of those other, those, mm. uh, you know, those other functions of communication. Yeah. It's interesting, Paul Zach also says we should communicate empathically, oxytocin, and he says even typing at the bottom of a mail saying hugs, Paul, just verbalizing I'm sending you a hug is already better than just sending the message. So interesting. Yeah. Got to be careful these days. Uh, you put hug at the bottom yeah. of an email, and someone might think you're <laughs> being inappropriate or <laughs> living in an overly sensitive True. world now where you know you've got to be careful of, about offending anyone. Yeah. Don't we just? I was just scrolling back looking at our WhatsApp, and we get the most amazing icons from years older. And every time I get one, it just makes me feel warm and happy. So <laughs> <laughs> it's working. Uh, Carry on. That, I guess a, a, like an emoji hug is still like a half hug, still. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I guess uh, if we get into the topic of the day, I mean, David and I have discussed, you know, various sort of ways of, of you know, topics of podcasts, and sometimes it resonates a lot more with me because it's more injectable, and sometimes it really resonates with David. It's much more sort of um, mindfulness and mindset, and you know, sort of um, maybe the other end of the spectrum. And I think this podcast in particular maybe blends the two probably as best as we can get. So I think we're both excited about this one, or I'm excited anyway. <laughs> so in terms of, um, I guess, how, we, how we're going to steer this towards injectables, maybe we'll just start with the perfect consultation because that's really where all of this starts, I guess, is older. So, I mean, y- you teach and educate people about consultation rather than just injectables, but why do you think it's well, you know, if you go to a basic injectables course, the first thing you do is you get a, a syringe of Botox and you're, you're told to inject a glabella and, and you sort of de- develop that skill, but you forget the whole history and diagnosis and examination sort of process. It's, it's completely backwards. It is. Yeah. And I think as far as consultation goes, the big thing is people have forgotten to listen. It's fascinating. Um, I was an examiner for um, a European university two weeks ago where I had to examine the consultation skills part. So um, I was play acting. I was the patient. Every 15 minutes, a new candidate came into the room and um, they had to take a history from me. And I was um, actually shattered by how people just don't listen. They they want to speak. Mm. So I would think that you you should want to listen to understand. I guess so. If they can just get that but. But if they really listen, patients are going to volunteer more. You're going to get the correct information to make a better diagnosis. But why do you feel that, you know, these, um, you know, uh, third-party injectables courses that pop up, like they seem to think that if you can just teach someone to squirt something into a face, you are trained and ready to go. And yet, you know, 
we know anecdotally, and David knows he's a clinic owner. The, the, the consultation is, is the key. It's, it's the gold. It's how you tap into someone's psyche, work out why they're really there. You open a whole conversation about the whole face rather than what they maybe demand that you do. And then you develop that relationship. But it just seems to be pushed to the side. And why do you think that is? Um, I think the world has become very commercially driven, sadly so. But the thing that I found fascinating, especially the last while, is especially in these scary, fearful COVID times, the biggest driver in my clinic has actually been trust. Things that were previously seen as soft skills have now become the hardcore drivers sending people back to you. Every second patient sitting on my bed post-COVID truly told me, I've come because I trust you. Mm. I was telling Jake, you know, we I, I went through two military roadblocks to get to work the first month after, um, after lockdown ended. Our patients too, it's scary, but they came because there was a bond, because there was trust. And in our country, I can tell you there are many, many chain clinics that are that are just empty. So there needs to be the bond. And I, there's a certain perverse joy I find in this, that it's actually the human relationships that is now driving the financial sector. And it's actually, I think, it's a big trend in businesses too, the ones that listen. Before you get financial capital, you've got human capital. Before that, you've got psychological capital. Before that, you've got emotional capital. If you don't have that, you lose people's um, resources and IP. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you run into a situation where your service just becomes commoditized because anyone with a relative degree of training can perform most treatments to it to a certain standard. I mean, obviously, you know, to to reach a level um, where you're considered an industry leader, obviously, you know, not everyone can do that. But um, the process of actually injecting it is fairly straightforward from from what I've seen. Like we're talking about Botox, for example. Um, but what separates um, I guess an injector that's ultimately successful and has those relationships with their clients that last perhaps a lifetime or you know, extended periods of time is how you make that patient feel about themselves, how they feel about that experience with you um, and being able to take someone on a journey. It's more than just a transaction or, or you know, sort of point, shoot, kill, it is, I guess, to put it crudely, you are <laughs> taking someone on a journey. I so agree. And it's interesting. It's what makes the patient happy in the end. Also in Singapore, a previous time, um, we also did the MD codes thing where you had to teach the patients to um, the, the, the physicians to assess patients. So and um, we made it into a game. I don't think it was the time you were there. It um, was. Jake, I remember. Was it? Yeah, it was. So, yeah. So each table had to construct um, a patient case, where and they had to present it as a group, um, and explain the case, what they did, the whole story. But it was basically an, an unhappy patient. So mm. the room had to listen and try and. Try and hear why it didn't work. Was it a wrong volume, a wrong area, a wrong product? And um, fascinating, over two days, I actually made notes. Nearly every table by choice chose a scenario when where the patient shouldn't have been injected. It was just the, the wrong patient choice. That they didn't listen. They didn't get it right. They didn't hear. And um, I mean, multiple countries in the world were represented there, and um, it, it is so universal. People... We should be listening to our patients, and it's mm. it's gone out of vogue. What do you think the gold standard consultation looks like? I mean, it, it, it's so very depending on why someone's there. But are there any basic things that you teach when you're teaching consultation that you think are an absolute must? Right? You know, some things are flexible, but what do you think has to be there that is often forgotten? Well, I think one should start with open-ended questioning, just um, trying to hear what they're about, 
and just try and be quiet until they finish their first series of um, observations. The, the average time before a physician inter, inter, interjects is sort of, I think, 11 seconds. Yeah. And one should start with open-ended questioning. An example of that, well, maybe um, I always love, um, just to bring it back home, if I come, my husband comes home from work and I ask him, um, how was your day? He'll say, okay. <laughs> but if, if, I, if I tell him, um, tell me about your day, he tells me about his day. So that's the difference between an open question and a not open question. So to ask the patient, um, how can I help you? Tell me why you're here. And then one listens. Just yeah. listen. And once mm -hmm. one has the first um, volume of input, to then um, reflect it back and tell them, so what I hear is this. Am I correct in assuming this? Then you make sure that you, they've been properly heard and then they feel heard and then one brainstorm some um, options together and then at the end you you start coming with the specific um, recommendations I always believe that this thing the I word one must leave for the last phase it's like a communication funnel you start open-ended um, get the information reflect back brainstorm together and then one makes a recommendation but I think that all sounds very um theoretical but if one is just truly curious about the patient and you really care many of those things happen automatically i believe yeah. i think so something that's a little bit of an issue particularly here in australia is because cosmetic injectables have become so popular um, people now are going into nursing or, or medicine or what have you to to really go in with an aim to go into it as a career when they finish. Whereas, you know, up until this point, people have gone into medicine or nursing for another reason and they've sort of moved into cosmetic mm -hmm. either by accident or, or the, the, their path has just led them there. And when you're, I guess, in hospital and treating patients over the years, you develop some skills where you actually have to understand and communicate with patients. And I think that skill perhaps is being lost a little bit when people fast track themselves straight into going into injecting where they haven't had that experience or they've actually had to care for a patient um, over a period of time in, in, a, in a normal medical setting. And perhaps that's a, it's a skill that's been lost because of that, that, as you said, the commercial reality of the, of the industry that we're in now. It's true. But um, above and beyond that, um, I think it's more than that. It's about our core values. It's about our why. Everybody has a what and a how and a why. If you think of Simon Sinek, it's about your why. So if you go into nursing just to make money by injecting patients, you are never going to be there. If you go into that because you truly want to help patients and be there for people, it's a different motivation. So I think it all boils down to core values. And core values have become increasingly commercialized over time. Can I take you back to the MD codes? I mean, not to go into it in, in huge detail, but you know, some people who don't maybe understand sort of the nuances of it just see it as a bit of a, a point and shoot sort of approach to injecting. But what I loved about it is the consultation process and getting patients to understand maybe their wants versus their needs don't always match up. Like, can you just explain from your experience, you know, you know, the benefits of, of maybe that approach to sort of, you know, treating people and assessing people? Yeah, I find that hugely powerful. It's not the only tool I use when I consult, but I mean, I literally do what Mauricio does and I tell them, here's a white pencil, draw three dots, the three things that bother you. 
And then you ask them to choose an emotional attribute. It's, it's hugely powerful when they start realizing um, the difference between the two. Yeah. And I, I think one of the most powerful things is, you know, people might come in and say, oh, I want my lips today. And, you know, maybe they don't obviously understand the holistic things or, or the, the global changes that have happened to their face. And then if you say, well, maybe we should tweak some of the negatives first and then we can work on the positives. I think a lot of that resonates with a lot of people when you explain it. But if you don't explain Absolutely. it and just say no, mm. uh, I'm mm. not going to do your lips today because it doesn't make any sense. It, you get this immediate, um, you know, the rapport is sort of um, blocked and then that creates a bit of a difficulty for the rest of the consultation. Yeah. I always find it useful to start with positives in any case. Um, the, the one technique I use every single day, in my practice, is um, Arthur Swift's Seven Features of True Facial Beauty, which I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. But when, when they ask, ask you, well, what, what should I do? You tell them, well, you know, there are seven features of beauty. <laughs> the one is the oval-shaped lower face. Your jawline is beautiful. Second is the height of the forehead, tick. The brow is fine. The nose, lips, mouth, clarity of skin. Um, sh- tell them what is beautiful or good on them because there's never somebody where everything is bad. And then, um, then you have um, immediately um, started a foundation of collaboration and probably the beginning of trust. Do you um, ever adapt your communication style depending on the person that you're talking to? And the reason I ask is because, I mean, I, in my earlier years, I worked in sales and in, in you know various different iterations. And one of the things they always taught us was to try and... Um, well, there's lots of different techniques you can i mean nlp and so on but i mean when you're like looking at what kind of personality someone is i'm um, trying to adapt your communication style so the language that you use the speed at which you speak your tone your body language even the rate at which, which you're breathing because our brains are subconsciously looking for similarities um between us and the person that we're communicating with or having an interaction with um so i was wondering do you do you, do you maintain like a constant do you, are you always yourself in terms of the way you communicate or do you adapt the way you speak depending on who you're talking to? I'm pretty sure one adapts, but I don't do mm. it consciously. If, if you are truly interested in somebody and truly curious, um, the response should be good. But I mean, we are faced with four totally different aesthetic generations. Um, Gen Z fascinates me. Um, Gen Z is different to the to the millennials is different to the boomers they, they, they differ and understanding where they're coming from um of course it will um affect how we um, relate with them i think we've discussed this on our podcast david with uh, grizz we were sort of talking about communication mm. specifically but um how would you deal with someone who came in who's you know potentially a little bit short maybe a bit stroppy you know um has been a bit are you describing rude? me no, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we occasionally see these people and, you know, you're not whether you're sure, yeah, it could be because they're anxious. It could be because they're worried. It could just be because they're an asshole. So how do you mm-hmm. approach those sort of patients? Because it can be really awkward. They come in, you know, they're very one word answer. It's hard to sort of get them going. How do you approach that? I just truly listen. And if they know you really want to hear, I wait. I wait for them to speak. So if, if you give them the time, actually time is one of the um, integral um, ingredients of empathy too. There must be enough time. So um, I, I wait for them to tell me. And I question, I try to do open questions. This is an aside, but um, 
we were talking about the MD codes and how it teaches you to analyze the face. And I must say, that's helped me often with these really, really difficult patients because sometimes they come in and they're difficult. They know exactly what they need. Mm -hmm. I and mean, I don't know why they come to us. They actually come to tell you what to do. Yeah. Then I also listen. But um, by the time a patient gets into my office and um, they've had their photographs, it's been sent down to me. Um, if you speak through a face in the way we've been taught analytically, amongst others via the MD codes, if you speak through a face thoroughly, the, the thirds, the um, vertical segments, what you see, what happens dynamically, by the time you're through all that, you know, with the patient on the screen, I challenge you to show me, um, I've never found a patient who will then still try and superimpose his view on you. So I suppose if you, it's a quiet way of showing your um, your knowledge. And that's the other thing, you know, that I, I wanted to say just now, the trust triangle, um, there are, many trust triangles, but um, one that comes from Harvard Business School too, um, has three components, which are authenticity, logic, and empathy. Mm. So logic is our way of showing our knowledge. If you can show your logic in an um, acceptable way, it's one of the three reasons for a patient to trust you. One of the things that um, I guess many injectors struggle with is having the confidence to actually tell people in their opinion what it is that they need to achieve the look or the, whatever it is, whatever the outcome is that they're looking to achieve. Um, so being able to look at someone's face and actually make suggestions. So someone might come in with, you know, say, you know, talking about um, the way that their, their, their emptiness under their eyes is making them feel, but that might be caused by something else and how the features all relate to each other. I know a lot of injectors um, feel very shy or cautious or don't feel it's their place to actually tell someone um, everything that they need or what's called like, just, I guess, looking at the face more globally or more holistically. Now, is it is it a confidence thing, do you think? And and if so, how do, how do you sort of overcome that as an injector, being able to have the the confidence to be able to tell people in your in your opinion what's actually what it is that they need to achieve the outcome? Um, it's interesting. Every patient that sits on a chair in your office, I would say, is a anatomy whisperer. As as they sit there. You, Anatomy fascinates me. So if you put them in the chair and give them a mirror and explain to them, so um, here's the structure. Um, at the age of 40, 45, you start losing bone on the lateral cheekbone. Look, can you feel? Give me your finger. Feel the little dent. And then you've got these fat compartments that basically butt but don't communicate. Can you see here you've lost fat if one does this? So by speaking through the internet on the patient with a mirror, um, I find it fascinating to see and to show them and they become absorbed in the process. So then it doesn't become sort of you showing them their faults. You're explaining anatomically on their face um, what has become more deficient and you can illustrate with a, with a finger um, positioning, repositioning what is what is possible. So I, anatomy truly fascinates me. Um, it, it truly fascinates me and I, I love showing the patients their own anatomy too and I find that that is a very absorbing way of getting them part of the process without being told that these and these and these are deficiencies. But that's very personal. No, I, I totally agree. And something else that um, I've started doing, as I say to people, do you look more like your mum or your dad? And obviously most oh. people look like one or the other. And you can say, okay, well, that's sort of your blueprint. That's what's going to happen to you in 20, 30 years. So let's put some building blocks in place to slow that down because we can see some really, really early signs. And then they get it because they can connect the dots of aging. Um, so, yeah, that's just something. That's great. Um, yeah. I, I guess one of the things that causes difficulty in consultations is, is the common barriers, whether it's, 
you know, fear of the unknown, pain, um, budget, um, downtime, uh, what their husband's going to say if he finds out, or their friends and peer pressure. Th- these are all common. I'm guessing they're common in South Africa as well. How do you go about breaking down those barriers? Because I think that once you have done that, however it is, and, and gain trust, and we'll come on to trust in a bit more detail, I sometimes feel you've got that person for life because suddenly the conversation can open. But it's so palpable sometimes that there's this wall between you and the patient and they're just they're not willing to sort of let their guard down until something has happened. And it's, it's very hard to sort of pinpoint what it is that you need to do. It's so true. That's published data. Fear, um, fear of um, complications, pain and trust are the three biggest ones facing us. And um, as far as the pain goes, um, if somebody trusts you, their subjective experience of pain is less. That's also very well published data. So um, I would think just giving the proper time to talk through everything. I never do fillers on the same day I see a patient. I don't think you do in Oz either. I think you've got a cooler phase. But giving enough time to really discuss things with them um, is hugely important. Do you do fillers on the day you see a patient, Jake? If it's a new patient, um, generally, it's not, a, it's not a rule. I don't have a rule that I won't. But generally, I'll open the conversation. We'll look at their face, take the photos, etc. And I think an easy win is to do some Botox to get yeah. them to understand how the glabella relaxes, the eye sort of opens up, the brow shape slightly alters, and we soften some crow's feet or whatever we do. That gets the confidence because nothing crazy or, or unusual has really happened. It's just a nice, subtle result. But we have the conversation and the treatment planning to do the filler. Um, of course, if they come in and, and they're well educated and you know the conversation is easy and I think that they're a good candidate, sometimes I might do something. But I, I, I agree generally that it's good to sort of plan and get them to go away and think about it, not just because they can think about downtime and and everything else, but financially that they're set, they can really think about it and they don't have any buyer's regret, you know, um, a week later when they've had their fillers done. So I think it's a good way of doing it. I agree. And also, you know, if you consult adequately, you must consult for all the categories of complications. So for me to tell a patient, these are the four categories, um, intravascular injection and blindness is one to have him sign that form. And then you do a procedure half an hour later, I just, not something. It's not something I enjoy doing. So yeah. um, I always have a pre, always have a pre, um, pre um, fellow consultation where we discuss things in the complications, the um, desired outcomes, and costs. We do the photography, and they can go go away and think, and then they get you know um, scheduled in. So I've got the full time available for the procedure itself. I feel more at peace. I need structure, as I said. Um, a question for both Jake and, and yourself is that do, do you find that um, you, you mentioned we're treating multiple generations of people sort of, you know, from, you know, my parents down to people my age and then the younger generation as well. And, you know, Jake was saying that sometimes, you, you know, patients will come in and they want filler straight away. Do you find that the younger people, like say for, a, you know, a 20-year-old girl wanting to have her lips done will be a lot more confident about wanting to jump straight in. She's not interested in talks. She wants her lips done straight away and she'll be a lot more. It seems that the younger generations are less fearful. They have less barriers. They're a little less conservative. They are less fearful. Whether it's right because of lack of fear to do these things is a totally different story. Mm-hmm. We've actually started at our clinic now a youth program. Um, you know, I believe 
it's so important. The younger, the Gen Zs, they should be educated now about um, their skins, about what they shouldn't be doing. Because so often they go with their millennial friends and they get sucked into things they shouldn't be doing. They 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 are unenlightened. They don't have the maturity to realize. So um, just maybe as a mother, I've got this incredible um, need that they um, that they should understand that they should be. Um, that, that should be educated. So we've really started an active educational program in our clinic. Um, and um, it actually started, I have a um, wonderful patient for many years who's got a daughter of 19, who's typical Gen Z, with a friend of 26. And the 26-year-old millennial friend kept on telling her, let's go, let's go and do our lips, let's go and do our lips. And she kept on saying, no, no. And then eventually she said, um, okay, let's just do it. So I told, and the mother came to me because she was concerned. So I told her to bring both kids to me. I wanted to. I spoke to them. I want to know what I need to tell the 19-year-old, what she needs to understand, not to just go and do her lips because the 26-year-old friend has just done the lips. And I find them um, a fascinating generation. I think in my country, probably we are um, more naive than in a country like ours. But um, there's, a, there's a great need of education to be done here. And I think a lot of preventative work to be done to stop um, the um, totally abnormal looking ones walking around on the street. Yeah. I think they're all, well, you know, they're all doing this, you know, the selfie poses. We all know a, a mobile camera um, is a wide angle lens. So you've got a 30% distorted picture of the lips and then they pout. They've got an abnormal pose too. So you multiply that and they're becoming used to that. Yeah. So, yeah. so they, so um, their new normal is becoming um, a 30% um, enhanced version of an abnormal pose. And it's being brainwashed yeah, into sort them. Of desensitized to normal. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's a social media thing too. Yes. Yeah, people have got so much pressure. I mean, they pick up their phone and they're seeing, you know, feeds of all these beautiful, you know, men and women and, you know, mm. these unachievable, you know, levels of perfection. And they think that that's how they need to look. They don't realize that, you know, maybe one in a hundred million people look that perfect, but for everyone else, you know, they don't look that great all the time. And, you know, there's a lot of filters and angles. I might take a hundred photos and, and mm. you know, do all sorts of things with it and that's the one that gets po- posted. But unfortunately, mm. that message has been continually reinforced. I've even like found myself like, you, you know, you're looking at things and you go, oh my God, like, you know, you, I can imagine like a young impressionable mind would be very susceptible to that constant um, pressure to look, at, look a certain way. It, m- it must be very, very difficult. I think so too. I mean, they've proven that Instagram is the is, is the worst um, platform for depression for for mental um, illness. You know what intrigues me? Everybody's got these um, pouting poses when they when they do the selfies. I would love to see in 10 or 20 years from now whether the marionettes are creasing more because I mean lines form because of habitual muscle action. I I want okay. I'm, I want to see whether we're going to have to treat more in that area because of. Um, Ten years of, of selfie poses on it. On yeah. on I call it the Trump. I call it the Trump. The Trump look because that's what Donald Trump does. Yes. Isn't it? He does that. He does that. Do <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you think that that sort of uh, influence is directly correlated to BDD, or it's just um, a coincidence that now we have social media, but we're more aware of BDD? Um, well, that's a huge topic. Well, no cell fighters is an entity. The compulsion to keep on doing selfies. I mean, if you if you find the need to do more than three selfish selfies, which you publish per day, it, it's been basically categorized by the American Psychiatry Association as a form of OCD. So it, it's it's a, definitely a manifestation. Um, BDD is is a is also is, is a huge spectrum. 
yeah. fascinating, actually. And what I've been finding interesting, too, that I'm, I actually haven't been doing fillers for a while because of, of um, various you know fears with the COVID, with the second wave and late-onset nodules, is how these BDD patients have actually been unmasking themselves because we know they don't listen, they don't want to hear, they see only a certain part of their face, and they just will not listen to reason. And I've been finding it fascinating how um, how several of these have been unmasking themselves by such classical behavior that you just actually want to smile. So it's a crazy world that we live in, um, and I don't think it's getting any less crazy anytime soon. So buckle up. <laughs> so, yes. um, I was wondering, how do you combat patients that you've treated, they're unhappy, they're irate, they're angry? How do you get that patient back to a point where you can deal with the situation or you're able to get them back to in, I guess, that frame of mind where you can actually work together on a solution. I mean, because that's something that happens to every injector is that, you know, you do enough treatments, you're going to have a number of unhappy patients or things that don't go according to plan or not in line with their expectations. How do you sort of reset that and sort of reestablish the trust? Well, firstly, if a patient um, is unhappy about anything, we quite meticulous about doing good photography so if a patient is in any way unhappy the phone in we tell them please come in so before they see me they go for photographs they see things on the screen in the photo room by the time they get to me all the pictures are on the screen so um eight times out of ten there there wasn't really a problem it was a perception but they feel acknowledged they see what we see and then you discuss the problem if it is um on a screen and also um I find it once again just so important to listen. Just listen and acknowledge. Don't try and make excuses. Just talk through the problem together. It doesn't help getting um, defensive in any way. Just acknowledge the problem. Then 9.9 out of 10 of them are absolutely fine too. Um, I'm, I'm very blessed. I don't often struggle with people. Um, I have actually amazing patients. But I, um, it's important for me... I want to hear what they say, and it's important to take extra care sometimes to really make them feel they have been listened to and that they've been heard. Why don't we um, sort of, I guess, flip that on its head and ask, how do you establish trust? I guess, what is trust? It's kind of this weird, um, uh, you can't see it, you can't pay for it, you you can't Mm. really force it, but somehow it just happens and you've sort of got this unmentioned sort of nod to each other that, okay, we, we've formed this bond now and you're going to come back and see me in three months, et cetera. But it can be very fragile as well. So how do you, how do you define trust? It's really, it, I struggled with that too, Jake. And then I got this other amazing TED talk by, there's a Prof. Francis Fry, also Harvard Business School. She's actually the person who diffused the whole um, Uber crisis. And her um, trust triangle has got authenticity, logic, and empathy. And it's from that triangle with the empathy part that I started um, hunting down empathy. But um, if you are, patients sense your authenticity. It's got something to do with your core values. And they perceive your logic, whether you've explained things well or not. And then they experience your empathy or not, not just your empathy, but the whole practice environment. So it's, incredibly important that the, the place you um, that receives them is also perceived as an empathic environment. My patients often tell me, you know, I, I like coming here. I, I like how I feel when I come mm-hmm. to your clinic. 
So for me, it's those literally those three components. So, so do you train your reception staff to, for example, you know, answer the phone in a particular way, or are they trained to deal with some of the common injectable questions? So, you know, those seeds of trust start from the initial phone call, or or not so much. Actually, they they do get trained absolutely, and um, we we have got an um, incredibly active um, education program in our clinic. I, I mean, any talk that I give anywhere over the world, I will tell them, Look, guys, I've got this talk, and they are very enlightened girls. So um, they come in an hour before work, and I give my talk, and I have them ask all the questions they want to ask. So they are literally um, in the know of any content that my colleague and I do. And I think if they are really informed and understand, although they don't do these procedures, they understand them. It, it, it's just a different level of confidence when they are enlightened. So we, we do train them and we, in many ways. Do you think that trust, um, how do I put this has to be, um, formed between a medical professional and a patient, or do you, how do I put this? Does sometimes the patient just sort of assume that the doctor knows what they're doing? And so, you know, that's, that's, it's just almost a transactional thing. You're there to see the doctor and whether you believe it or not, that's, you know, you're going to get your treatment today mm. or do you have to I have trust, trust? Yeah. I think one must have trust. It's like the, um, the essence of a happy patient. And, and there are many publications proving this, the, the essence of trust in a patient doctor, um, relationship is communication being able to communicate adequately so it's how you listen to the patient how you um treat them while they're there and also how you make them feel yeah i guess you know anecdotally we you know there's always the stereotypical surgeon who's you know doesn't listen to anyone and he's arrogant and it, you want to be the opposite of that yes Fair enough. Now, why do we instinctively sometimes not trust people for no good reason? We just, you know, <laughs> just don't like the way their face looks or, you know, something <laughs> happened that, that irritated you as you walked in and you, you, you're already on the back foot as the injector before you've done anything. Why does that happen? Do you know anything about that? Well, it's firstly, that's how our brain, how we've been wired. We, our baseline function is in distrust mode. We live down in our inferior frontal gyrus. It's how we were made. We must take the decision to trust. But um, barriers to trust and empathy, I mean, they are things in the patient, the fact is in us, and it's also situational. If there's too little time, um, if they are rushed, if they are stressed, there, there are many factors at play. After, but our basic instinct is, 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 is sort of not, not to trust, strangely so. Yeah, I, I've grown to quite like the patient that comes who's short and distrustful because I see it as you know, not a challenge, but like I see it as my role mm. as a good injector to get to that point where they do relax and uh, are happy to do a treatment with that trust. So yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. And it, it, you know, you never get this green light that goes on and says, ah, trust has been formed. Now we can proceed. It just sort of mm. happens in this weird dynamic. Yeah. I find that um, so meaningful the last while, as I was saying, um, also, the difference we make to their quality of life, and to, to really listen. And this is this isn't as an injective, but just as a as a as a doctor. I mean, we um, it's often people with a higher trait empathy that get drawn to the caring professions, whether they're nurses, whether they're doctors. We've got higher trait empathy, and it's part of your job satisfaction and also patient happiness to form that bond. I mean, if I had wanted to do just facts and figures, I would have done something else. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what's the difference between rapport and trust? Is it the same thing? Are we using different words to describe describe the human the same emotion, or are they two distinctly different different emotions or different yeah. states of being? I don't know the academic difference, but I mean the fact that I have rapport that I know how you're thinking doesn't mean I trust you. Mm. I can be, I really hear what you say. I can see exactly how your brain is running, but I don't trust you. I know what you've got in mind. So, um, but I don't know the textbook definitions of that. Trust is a very special thing. And empathic communication is is a cardinal part of um, that whole equation. I, um, I remember something really interesting that you said on your webinar for Allegan a, a few months ago after the lockdown. And you said that because we're, you know, covered with a mask and we've just have our eyes now, we've lost facial expression without communication that, and, and you know, we're not allowed to touch people. So that sort of sensation has gone. You can use auditory things to make people feel calmer with music um, or things like that. And then there's also the olfactory where, you know, Yes, I did. I didn't mean to do this uh, specifically, but I did a post on Instagram about a month ago where I've got this candle in my room now, and maybe there is something in that that you're sort of delivering a nicer environment in a kind of a a period now where we don't have that um, visual cue, or, or you know, we ha- we need to add yes. and, and and do something different. Yeah, goodness, I struggled that first week after lockdown, Jake. I wanted to cry every day when I got back home. I felt utterly emotionally amputated. Um, I could see the fear in the people's eyes. I, I can't hug them. Mm. They, we, we read each other's body language and where normally you would lean in, now you sort of recede, you, you stand back behind your mask and your visor. Goodness, I struggle. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I, was, I was truly distressed. And then I just thought I want to start building new associations and I just started burning candles. I don't know why. And we sent this message telling people, when you see the candle, know that we care. When you hear the music, know that I'd like to hug you. Um, We really care. And I started feeling better. And I couldn't understand why. But because I was doing this webinar, I started reading. And it's it's huge. It's amazing the effect of um, the olfactory sense. I mean, it it has twice the ability of music to evoke positive emotions. Yeah. smell or factory we've got memory for it it's, so it's it's actually amazing it boosts your immunity i was never really into aromatherapy but it, it there is a lot of science to that studies where they even tested your um, interferon alpha your interleukin 6 your physical blood markers where they proved it helped and what i found interesting i don't know whether i said this in my talk but it reduces anxiety and it's actually the patients with higher trait anxiety that um are reassured more by fragrance. So what about a fragrance room in our practices for the very scared patients? Yeah. That was a joke. And are there there particular (laughs) kinds of smells that tend to people that feeling of trust or is it just any smell that they find pleasing? I mean, because it's a very individual thing, right? You could ask someone, what do you think of this cologne? And, you know, you can get lots of different opinions. I think that's very individual. I didn't, in my reading, come across any specific... One, I mean, we must ask the aromatherapists that, but everybody has their own <laughs> preference. I was yeah. watching a, a Netflix show, I think it's called Unwell, and they explore different, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, topics. And one of them was on aromatherapy. And it's really interesting. A woman who's a trained aromatherapist, she works in a cancer hospital. 
And yes. of course, her job is to, um, you know, see patients and explore their feelings and depression, etc. And she does. She uses essential oils um, and foot massages or simply just literally wafting them the smell. And I mean, maybe it was just because he's on camera. Maybe it's a placebo effect. But the guy was like, I actually feel calmer. And they noticed that his pain... Um, scores were going down because he was demanding less painkillers. It's really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of science on that. Even financially, I mean, in our country, they always say if you view a house and there's fresh coffee brewing or the smell of um, bread that's baking, you can add 10 grand to the price. <laughs> if you think of it, it's, yeah. it's homeliness. It, it, it has the ability to just create an ambiance that um, is special. That's the subway effect, right? When you walk past a subway, you feel like a subway. <laughs> you feel like <laughs> Do you guys have subway in South Africa? Am I oh you do? We don't. We 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 get no we don't. We get them in London. Right, okay. Because you know you can travel. Yeah. Yeah. You walk past and you just smell and all of a sudden you're like you you're, you're hungry. You just you know that smell. I think a lot of businesses are now starting to catch on to that um with having sense through their through their through their businesses and it just sort of changes you know, the way people feel, they're, how they interact with your brand, your product, with you as a person. It, de- it definitely has an effect, definitely. Well, I remember yes. the shop Abercrombie had its own yeah. set, but it's a clothes shop. And I always kind of thought, well, yeah, I kind of like the smell, but it doesn't make me want to buy clothes more. It just seemed like a strange thing to have for a clothes shop. But I guess at least you have the association of, ah, Abercrombie. Mm. But yeah, anyway... Um, moving on, I guess, can, can we sort of pin down what we mean by empathy and, and how does that tie into injectables? Like really that's the core of, of this podcast. Like when I first heard your talk, I was like, where is this going? And then you brought it back to the consultation and how you make people trust you and empathy. So can you just touch on that topic as well? Well, it's an utterly integral part of the consultation process and of just human relations. But um, the, the, the neuroscience, if you want to know what it is, the neuroscience just blew me away because the same molecule that is responsible for trust is exactly the same one that's responsible for, um, for empathy. And um, one of the other things I was thinking, we know that human touch is important for empathy. You can't hug people, but um, we are handling people's faces. And you can, you can be mindful about how you touch them. If you must know how many times the last while people have told me, thank you for how you cleaned my face. We, 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 you, you're using those swabs. You are taking off the makeup. You, you know, taking off the, the, the pencil marks. Just be mindful. And this I found interesting. There's a very specific way of um, inducing and training empathy, which Professor Reese at Harvard Medical School actually um, proposed, the EMPATHY. Many of those things have become difficult, but many of them are still doable if you are mindful. So, I mean, E is for eye contact. So now you've got a visor and you've got a mask and people are sort of receding. If you are mindful, if you are in the moment, when you look in the patient's eyes, you look at them and you speak, you can still make the eye contact. Not like sort of um, one tends to turn around and sort of um, grab something behind you and turn back to the patient. Um, I've learned not to, sp- not, not to speak when I do that anymore. So when I speak to somebody, I stand and I look at them and I speak. When I touch them, I touch them because I mean to do so. And I try to have a congruent facial expression. There's actually a study where they've proven um, kind touch versus unkind touch 
and kind facial expression versus unkind facial expression. And if you touch somebody in a kind way with a kind look on your face, the fMRI scan is totally different to when you do them in a disparate way. Isn't it fascinating? So people pick up on that. So we, it just comes down to being mindful and present to what we're doing. Also when we inject it because then the pain is less too. Yeah, I, I guess most people would sort of assume, oh, you know, if you're nice to people and you smile at them, you sort of get that karma back. But I think what you're saying that maybe most people don't know is that it truly influences your physiology, your healing response, your pain perception. Like this is real science, not just fluffy, wishy-washy stuff of just about being yes. nice to people. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's, it's actually a feel-good you know, it's, it's amazing. We know that when you do a kind deed, um, your brain secretes oxytocin. So I do something nice to you. You feel good because I've been nice to you. I feel good because I've done it. If somebody has just observed the interaction, their oxytocin levels also go up. It's incredible. That's why one gets this paid forward effect by, um, they proved that at Cleveland Medical School, 23% within three weeks, paying the forward effect with, with, with more empathy between, um, between the students. It's actually um, huge. So, so what does oxytocin do? It's the same molecule that gets produced when a mother looks at her baby, right? Or cuddles her baby. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. So it's traditionally um, in the um, early simple organisms, its role was just the phylogenetic development of the species. And then the mammals came around and then it became the, the hormone for breastfeeding and for um, childbirth. And then the humans came, so it became something higher, um, trust and compassion, the cuddle hormone, the love hormone. Um, and it's still the one that gets secreted into the bloodstream when you are in childbirth or breastfeed. But it's fascinating. It, it actually doesn't work just in the blood. It works um, in the brain. Mm. And th this fascinated me. For a long time, scientists were really puzzled because if you inject it into the bloodstream, nothing shows up in the brain. So many of the studies were done by nasal inhalation of oxytocin and nothing much showed up either, but it had major behavioral differences. And then they discovered that there are in the brain, not only the oxytocin molecules, but oxytocin neurons, which go everywhere in the brain, which is um, amazing to give messages and even collateral circulations, which can become um, feel good things. How does oxytocin help people heal? And, and how is that relevant for you know, our patients or injectables or, or pain or swelling? I mean, is the oxytocin having a direct effect or, or, or do you know much about that? It has numerous effects. What I am actually, um, it, has, it has sort of numerous effects. They've proven that the we are constantly taking um, sensory inputs and changing them into meaningful outputs. So just smelling good fragrances, having good associations, having kind touch goes to the oxytocin neurons run to every single place of our brain. So, um, and the other fascinating thing, our brains, we've got neuroplasticity. This is the profound thing I wanted to say. Our brains can make new neurons into our 90s, proven, but that happens under the influence of oxytocin. So it's, it's sort of the nurturing hormone. If, if that isn't there, things don't develop. That's why a little baby in an um, incubator um, Without parents, if, if they don't get handled, they don't thrive, they die. They lose weight and they die. If you just handle them by kind touch, they thrive. So all our neural circuitry is basically um, nurtured by the hormone called oxytocin. It's a, an amazing compound. 
well, you, you hear a, a lot of situations where um, a couple will have been together for, you know, the majority of their life and one of them will, will pass away and then that leads to uh, a rapid um, decline and it's sometimes the eventual death of the partner who initially had nothing physically wrong with them but just the grief and, and obviously that lack of oxytocin and not having that interaction and connection leads to, you know, them, you know, I guess facing a similar fate. Yeah, it's got to do with our resilience. This fascinated me. I found this incredible publication on on human resilience. And there are three components. One is um, sociality, you know, having a circle of support. The other one is plasticity, being able to do things differently when things go wrong, find other ways. And the third one is meaning. And interestingly, all three of those tenets of resilience run through oxytocin pathways. Mm-hmm. It, it's so fascinating. And also the fact that um, doing acts of kindness or acts of service also secrete oxytocin, which give you meaning, which make you more resilient. So, I mean, what a time for empathy in this COVID phase. What a time for empathy. Are there any um, subtle telltale signs or things that I guess people listening to this podcast can take away and implement into their own practice to actually know when you need to, I guess, dial up that that empathetic side of your personality, the things that you look for, subtle cues in the way someone's behaving or they're interacting with you that makes you go, aha, uh-huh, you know, I, I need to sort of dial this up a little bit. This patient's not feeling, you know, I can sense that they're not feeling in, in a good place. Well, I think it's not directly what you ask, but the, the first thing that I think we need to dial up is our self-empathy because we are all becoming stressed and anxious and eroded. And if you don't have self-empathy, you can't have empathy for others. And um, we become less attuned if we don't make that space in ourselves. This is incredibly important. And if you are um, in a good space in yourself, you are more um, attuned to to um, people around you. I guess uh, something... Just, yeah. Sorry, I was, I was going to say, as well, in my consults, and, and particularly post-lockdown, I think sometimes you actually have to ask some explicit questions. It could be as simple as, how are you after lockdown? Like, What's going on with your family? Is your job okay? You know, just ask people because there's assumption that, you know, you're okay. You've come for my clinic for some Botox. You must be okay. But if you ask people directly, many of them are not. Um, many of them have lost their job and yet they've still mm-hmm. come for Botox, but you wouldn't have assumed that mm-hmm. because they're paying for a treatment. So I think sometimes you you can ask some not probing questions, but open-ended, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of general questions that have got nothing to do with injectables. Um, The other thing that I've noticed... Don't you you always do that? I mean, I always do that. Of course. (laughs) You know, but a lot of injectors don't, which is my point. They'll be, oh, hi, uh, what can I do for you today? And that's, that's, that's the conversation which I find weird because suddenly you're, you're laser sort of targeted onto lips and Botox. And, and that's not really yeah. where the conversation should be. But one of the things that um, I've noticed is that a lot of new patients come, and particularly post-lockdown, because something has motivated them to come, but they don't necessarily voice it. And a lot of people have gone through stressful breakups. Um, I've had several patients going through a divorce um, several mm. of them have lost their job and are looking for a new job and are feeling, you know, sort of looking older isn't going to help them competitively. But they don't really voice that. They just say, I'm here for some Botox, doc. But if you really get down to the nitty gritty and find out why they're there on your bed, 
then you know you can make that treatment holistic and actually develop that rapport and trust deeper i think i agree and maybe just starting with a simple thing like um tell me how you are tell me how i can help you or what can i do to help you then yeah. they um often often voice we spoke about it on another podcast with um, a mindset expert, but I, I sort of joked, but it's true. A lot of patients come, you know, for their Botox. It's almost like that's not really why they're there. They're there. They're there to have a chat with you and offload about, um, you know, something or, or drama in their life or whatever. And it almost becomes a psychotherapy treatment with with, with the it wrinkle does. treatment is kind of the side benefit mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, think think about think think about the relationship that people have with, say, their hairdresser. And I know it's not. I'm not saying that you guys are hairdressers. What I'm saying is that you think about the relationship that someone will have with their hairdresser. They'll follow that person to the end of the earth um, if they've yeah. got a relationship with them. And you know, you, you're, it's like a common running joke or theme. You know, oh, your hairdresser knows mm -hmm. about everything, and they hear all the all the dirty gossip, all the law. They hear everything because there's that trust. People develop such a relationship with their hairdresser, and it should be the same yeah. with their injector. It should. And Jake, I, um, I, David, I can see that you've got a very close relationship with your hairdresser. I can see you go often. <laughs> I'm my hairdresser. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, but, but seriously, if I must tell you how often I get letters of flowers from somebody who says to me, um, thank you, you've changed my life. And all I did was to listen without interrupting for 10 minutes. And that's actually terrible. If you think how... Um, devoid of human contact that our world has become while listening to somebody without interrupting for 10 minutes often they then hear themselves think for the first time how it can change a life so I think we've got a yeah. far larger role than just injectors you want to be there as a human being and as a doctor not just yeah. it's, it's for me it's far more holistic we're more connected than ever but we're so alone which is bizarre, isn't it? We can connect and talk to people within an instant on devices, whether it be through social media or email or pick up the phone and text someone, but we seem to be still more isolated than we have ever been before. I mean, when you meet someone, you know, sort of my grandfather's age, you know, they'll talk to anyone. Now, if you start up a conversation with a stranger, you're like almost like a creep or something, you know, there's something wrong with you. Yes. Yeah. I was at, at airports, everybody's sitting on a device. Everybody's trying to reach out to somebody. They're all sitting next to somebody, but they aren't speaking to each other. It's actually sad. Yeah. You see it in restaurants too. People are out with their like their partner or their family and everyone's just there, you know, they're, they're texting away and it's like, there's someone right in front of you. <laughs> mm. I'm guilty of it yes. too. It, it's, you know, like I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else. I, I'm guilt, just as guilty. Yeah. What um, simple things can people do to be more empathic as older because some people don't have that naturally no Th that's where Helen Reese's um, little um, acronym comes in handy so the E is for eye contact mm -hmm. just look somebody in the eye if you look somebody in the eye and you are present to them their brain makes oxytocin mm -hmm. and when their brain makes it it gives it to you so it's the gift that keeps on giving so make look into people's eyes I was fascinated when I was doing empathy training in India about a year ago, and I was doing these exercises with them, you know, in pairs, and I was gobsmacked because some people can look into somebody's eyes while they're speaking, but not when they're listening. Some can look into somebody's eyes when they're listening, not when they're speaking, and some can do neither. And I sat there with the first group and thought, 
goodness, what's, what's, going, what's wrong with this group? And the next group came in and exactly the same thing played out. So they truly are physicians, injectors who don't have the ability to look somebody in the eye when they speak to them or when they listen. So it's hugely important. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is um, muscles of facial expression. I mean, it's become difficult behind the masks, but just try and be attuned to what you think they're expressing. At, at least look at the parts that are sticking out and be aware of yours. Yeah. And then the, the, the P's posture. I mean, just be, we all know about open and closed posture, but what's interesting um, now, because we're afraid of, you know, um, the cove, one tends to sort of um, stand back, you sort of retreat and people pick it up. Um, I consciously try not to. I had a patient last week telling me, thank you for how you listen. You, you are leaning in with your eyes. Somebody said that to me and that's, that's so important, huh? Mm. So the posture is important. They've actually proven if you um, sit during a ward round versus stand, the patient's um, subjective perception is that you've been there twice as long. It's proven. And we were always taught that you stand up at a ward round. You don't sit on a patient's bed. But I'm incredibly aware of it. When I get called to one of the therapist's rooms, I always sit to look the patient, the person in the eye. I think I try not to talk down to people. And then the A is affect that is um, being able to label the um, expressions on their face. So telling them, um, you seem anxious, um, you look stressed, um, are you okay? That's yeah. so important. And then the T is tone of voice. And the voice has actually become an instrument because we muffle. We tend to turn away now when we speak with our masks. And the older patients who, are, who don't hear that well don't hear us because they can't read our lips. Yeah. This really has struck me. They, they, they don't hear us that well. So the voice has become a tool. And then the why is sort of your response. When they speak to me, it's like when I was doing the exams, um, I've said I've been on tamoxifen, I've had breast cancer, and they say, okay, next question. J just reflect on what they've told you and um, reflect it back. Think of your response. So if one remembers that little acronym and just try and, tries to apply those little things mindfully, it must make a difference because it's gone through your brain and eventually it will start becoming part of your practice. Does that help? It does a help. Bit? It, it summarizes it nicely. Now, I'm conscious of the time because I know that David has a pressing matter to attend to. Do you need to go, David? Oh, I've got a couple more minutes. He's got tw twinkle in the eye. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, can you give people maybe some bullet points, uh, maybe for new injectors, it's, it's probably more relevant of um, rather than just the point and shoot learning how to inject Botox, what, what, what are some bullet points for simple but effective consultation skills? Well, listen to understand and listen to really try and hear what they're saying. Too many people just don't listen. It's I keep on saying this, but it's um I really experienced this firsthand in the past two weeks um with the with the with the candidates. It's like um just listen. Um tick lists, don't ramble off a tick list. Um patients can fill that out in the in the um in the waiting room. Just listen to understand not only what they ask you, but the motivations behind it. Yeah. Because often they, they've got major insecurities behind the demands. I find that so often with the younger generation too, they, they want this and they want this and they want this. When you ask them, why would you prefer this? Why do you think that? You cannot believe what comes out. And it's, it's, it's very powerful um, having them feel that you're already listening. It's interesting. Um, 
there are fascinating studies proving that patients with body dysmorphic disorder have actually had um, adverse childhood events, a very high percentage of them. This comes from the rhinoplasty literature, very much so. Um, and um, they've been traumatized, and some people use um, drugs as medicine, some use um, self-harming behavior as medicine, and some people use procedures as medicine. So they feel terrible about themselves, terrible, and they try and do a procedure, and when it's done, they still feel terrible about themselves, so your procedure has failed. Yeah. So one needs to differentiate. You, you need to listen for and to these people. And, you know, and try and send the ones that you can, you know, to, to get the correct help. But there's a very high incidence of adverse childhood events. And because they've been traumatized, they, um, the reptilian brain takes over. So when you're speaking to a difficult patient too, it helps me to think you aren't speaking to a rational 20 or 30-year-old human being. You're speaking to the child of the age at which that trauma happened. And if you understand that, that you're speaking to a reptilian brain that was traumatized at a young age in their life, it gives you a lot more patience, empathy, and understanding for that person. Do you get um, referred patients from other injectors who um, maybe have had complications or poor outcomes or even those tricky ones who potentially have BDD but don't have a diagnosis? Do, do you see those uh, people? Very, uh, very often. They, um, one becomes sort of a referral centre, and I often do see them, yes. So... How do you feel about, um, you know, just, I guess, you know, very simply just treating like a problem, like just some bad lips and someone's been sent to you because, you know, there's lumpy lips and stuff. Like, do you, do you as a doctor, just own that? Or do you try to refer them back to sender and say, look, I'm happy to help if, if you still can't um, sort of manage this? How do you juggle that? Because it always causes difficulty between injectors and then suddenly the responsibilities on you as you know, the new treating physician. This is um, a very personal thing, Jake, <laughs> but I actually am return them to sender. Yeah. I really listen. I really consult. Um, I tell them um, the primary injector knows exactly what he's done. If it can be reversed, he knows exactly which product he's used, how much, what will be necessary to reverse. It's far better for them to go back to that person. Also, you know, um, I don't mind consulting with the real. Um, I've got a um, consultation, a complication reporting form too, and I tell them I'm I'm willing to see you if your physician has filled this out up front. Ah, that's other, it. Other, yeah. I, I, I sent, yeah. So they know I'm going to speak to their previous physician, which means they can't just bad mouth people. I, I physically got a form. Even if, a, if a, um, a, a physician asks me to see a patient, a consult, I ask them to fill out that form too. Because often they become panicky, they, they don't get the right methods of thinking. It's actually an educational tool as much as it is a, um, a consultation too. So um, I've, I've got a form and, and the patients now I'm going to ask the, the referring physician to fill this out. So it's all open. The, the reason I ask is because, you know, it always creates difficulty for, for actually everyone when trust is lost in the original injector mm. because suddenly the patient um, feels, you know, betrayed and, you know, that they haven't got a good outcome, they've wasted their money and suddenly you're the saviour. Um, and yet sometimes you can help, sometimes you can't help, sometimes it's not appropriate to help. Uh, mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, you may never agreed with the treatment done in the first place and you, you just want to wash your hands of it. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's a tricky situation. Have you got any stories where, you know, that, that's happened to you? 
Often. But I, um, I try and send them back to, to the, the referral doctor and tell them, look, when you get a patient with a complication, you've got an unhappy patient. So you've, you've primarily inherited a whole bundle of um, bad energy. So I tell them, if they will go back to the primary physician who can sort things out, who can reverse it, probably he will do so for them free of charge. And they come back to me, we can start afresh. Yes. But for you to do sort of um, reverse that, I mean, um, I just find it personally an unsatisfactory kind of situation, unless it's a really dire problem where things have been badly fractured relationships. I think that most injectors feel the same way. The issue is that because, you know, it, very often patients sort of make that decision to break off and they're like, look, I'm not going back to that person because, you know, they screwed up my face. And regardless of the fact that they've offered to dissolve for me, I'm just, I'm just done now. I want someone different. And I've heard you're good. So and here we are. And, uh, and suddenly you're that person. So you must see a lot of that if you're the referral center. Yeah. But I mean, um, when the patients phone to book for a, consult, for, for a complication, they know they're going to get this form. They know the physician will get this form. So it actually it just puts structure and sort of discipline into the system. I found that has worked for me through the years. Would you be comfortable sharing that form with us? Gladly. Yeah. And if anybody sort of starts bad-mouthing a doctor, I say, oh, yeah, I know him very well. This, this a colleague told me in the, my first year as a, as a dermatologist, if somebody starts bad-mouthing a colleague, say, oh, yes, I know him very well. And that sort of, that sort of ties yeah. many people up to. Yeah, I think that's, that's just a, a state of our society is, you know, we're willing to throw things away. You know, you look at this, how long relationships last these days. As soon as, you know, someone hits a bumpy road, they're willing to just walk away and find someone new. It's probably the same thing with the injector. I think it's just a, a – it speaks volumes about where we are as a society of people. Yeah, volumes, no pun intended, but that's yes. that's where we can that that's that's where we um can be different. That's yeah. I think we should be setting the example to humanity. We as HCPs can become the example that the rest of the world literally wants to follow yeah. because we're living it differently. Uh, that's I, I believe yeah. that. Wasn't that that Gandhi quote? Be the change that you want in the world. Something you also like said that, that yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I know that the same Prof. Yeah. Helen Reese. Yeah, Prof. Helen Reese wrote a beautiful article on the neuroscience of empathy, and her last sentence is, um, "Let us as healthcare providers be um, the, be the change that people want to follow," sort of thing. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I think but we'll it's, end it's, it's on, a Gandhi, on, on a Gandhi quote. That's a that's you a can't get much better than Gandhi. It's pretty hard to top Gandhi. No, <laughs> no exactly. <laughs> so, Isolde, how do people um, maybe get in touch with you if they want to explore some of these topics or, you know, discuss things with you? What's your Instagram or, or the best way to get hold of you? Well, they can mail me. You've got my – they're welcome to contact you um, and you're welcome to share my email address. Okay, perfect. I'm the, wor- I'm the worst – you know, I've got I'm, – I'm the worst for the social media. I actually <laughs> started an account and I just physically went off about a year ago because it, was, it wasn't doing me good. Yeah. I, I find it difficult to see people um, promoting themselves. There's actually a trust equation. Trust equals basically um, reliability plus accountability or something over self-orientation. Self-orientation is beneath the line. And if you think how social media accounts are driven, it's very self-orientated. So I'm sensitive to that. The more self-oriented people um, behave on a, on a social media platform, the more my trust goes down. And I just started realizing it's, um, I don't do well with this. So I've actually um, gone off my Instagram very largely. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the guy he used to work on, uh, well, with Facebook. And he's been very vocal about 
how you know social media and text messaging and of course facebook has been deliberately designed to pump up the dopamine and oxytocin and addict you through the chimes and likes and you know all, all these kinds of things mm. and and when you don't get it you feel depressed so yeah i essentially take these things with a pinch of the salt i mean you know i use mine for business and it works but you know you can see how you can fall down that spiral where you're not getting the love from everyone and not getting the likes and suddenly you feel a bit rubbish about yourself and then it becomes a vicious cycle so yeah i think that's a powerful thought and you've just got to treat these things with um with caution yes well thank you so much for joining us i know um i'm sorry i had to cancel last week because my son but we got there in the end um thank you Zelda. So, um we appreciate it what what are your plans for um you know post-covid like are you doing any more education stuff with elegant yes um many events are still happening just virtual the american asds is happening i'm doing many virtual and hybrid congresses actually so we're busy with monte carlo too is actually happening in november the asds is now in october so there are actually too many events and (laughs) and end of september is the deadline for pre-recording which is a totally new um learning curve to pre-record all your talks and send them in so um things are pretty lively still despite COVID. Fair enough. Well, good luck with everything and stay safe. And thank you for your time and joining us. Thank you, Zelda. Lovely to meet you. Yes. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.